Imagine what it'd be like if we were really curious about each other. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Relational Spirituality, the weekly podcast of LargerStory.com, the podcast that sees all relationships as spiritual and all spiritual formation as relational. Now, here's your host for this week, Kep Crab. Welcome, everyone, to Relational Spirituality, a larger story podcast where you can belong, you can become, and you can be known in the story that's going on right now, a story that we know how this story ends. I'm your host today, Kep Crab. When I was a young boy in the early 70s, I got a chance to see a couple of movies. The movies are called A Thief in the Night and A Distant Thunder. And some of you may remember those movies. They weren't exactly uh, the Hollywood productions that we're used to today. But the, the simple premise of the two movies, A Thief in the Night, was the rapture when Jesus comes back to get us. The second movie, A Distant Thunder, was what happens after the rapture, the tribulation. Some of you may disagree with the theology of the movies as to when Jesus is coming, but they, they left a lasting impact on me and they encouraged me really to dive into some of the books in the Bible that really talked about the end times, books like Daniel, Ezekiel, Isaiah, and the last book of the Bible, Revelation. I was fascinated and honestly frightened a little bit by the end times. I'm honored today to be joined by someone who my late father, Larry Crabb, greatly admired and really enjoyed his thought-provoking books. He's a husband of more than 50 years. He and his wife, Sharon, have four adopted children. Uh, from different countries, and now they have 11 grandchildren. And I guess we could probably sit and talk about the grandchildren because I'm expecting my first grandchild in December. So that could be a, a full episode for us if we wanted to. Maybe that's for another time. But we could also talk about some of the books that he's written, books like Experiencing the Trinity, 57 Words That Changed the World, and a book on story, the story that makes sense of our story. And here at Larger Story, we call that our smaller story, how that fits into his larger story. He also has come out with a new book on Ephesians, which I just got a copy of and cannot wait to dive into that. But that's not what we're going to be talking about today either. Today, we're going to be chatting about his book, Discipleship on the Edge. This book was published in 2004, and this book is about the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, the revelation of Jesus Christ to John on the island of Patmos. It's the last book of the Bible, and I am super excited today to have Daryl Johnson with us. Daryl, thank you for joining me today, and how are you? Well, welcome. I'm very pleased to join you and to get to meet you. Um, I knew your father's books over the years, and um, I'm touched that I can connect with him through you and through your ministry. So it's a joy to be with you today. Thank you so much. I know my brother had a chance to reach out to you a little bit ago just to tell you how much you meant to dad, and, and you responded graciously to him. And that's when I started thinking, hey, maybe if I invite this guy to do a podcast with me, it could work out. It's exciting. And like I said to you earlier, I only have about since dad's been gone now, or he passed through here about two and a half years ago, I only have about four or five hours of questions that I have for you today since I don't have him around anymore. So I hope you're ready to strap in, but uh, <laughs> I'll do the best I can. Lord, <laughs> Lord, help me. I appreciate it. It's, it's interesting because you and he have so many similarities, Daryl. Aside from the, the number of books that you've written, both of your prolific writers, the way you talk, the way you look, the way you dress, I don't know if that's the quintessential professor's uniform or not, but the, the biggest similarity and, and, and common thing that I think you guys really had and have is your love for the word and your love for his church. It's just, yeah. it just, it comes through in your writings. I've had a chance to see some of your videos and it's just clear as crystal. And just to tell you a little bit about my background, um, 
obviously, you, you know my dad a little bit or have read maybe some of his books, but three years ago, my wife was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. And, and it was a blow. She was given about a 20% chance to live five years. And then shortly after that, dad passed away. And that has changed my life. I am an absolute different person because of this. And my focus now has really been on heaven and the second coming. And so in preparation for what we were going to talk about today, obviously, I reread your book, Discipleship on the Edge, which I would encourage those of you who have not read that to do that. But I also had a chance to go through dad's book just real briefly, which was 66 Love Letters. And I don't know, Daryl, if you had a chance to read this, but he wrote this book no. years ago. And what he's doing is he's having a conversation with God in this book about why did you write Genesis? Why did you write the book of Obadiah? Why did you write the book of Malachi? And then he strings together the whole story. And, and, and Kierkegaard, as you might know, referred to the, the scriptures as, as 66 love letters. Each book of the Bible was a love letter to us. And so dad titled it 66 Love Letters. And I'm just going to read a quick excerpt from the final chapter of his book, which obviously is the 66th book of the Bible, Revelation. The title of this chapter is Reign with the Lamb Now, and You Will Sing When the Lion Roars. And dad opens up the chapter with a quote from Francis Schaeffer, where Schaeffer says, people often cry out for the work of the Holy Spirit. And yet forget that when the Holy Spirit works, there's always a tremendous cost to the people of God, weariness, tears, battles. And then dad says to the father, these words encourage me, father. After talking through the first 65 of your love letters, I still feel tired at times more than ever in both soul and body. And I find that deep tears come more easily than deep laughter, especially when something touches me in a tender spot. And the battle rages in me and around me. It doesn't seem to be letting up. If anything, it's getting more intense. Is this really the work of your spirit? Is this part of maturing? Is this one stretch of the narrow road to life? And then the father responds to dad by saying, I love this. When my son's kingdom breaks into yours, expect a collision. When his ways of relating confronts the world's ways of relating, including yours, all heaven and hell break loose. The battle is on, a battle to the death and to life. The side that appears to be losing is winning and will soon win visibly and decisively. My son will see to that. And the side that seems to now have the edge, the side whose godless agenda is growing in worldwide support, loses forever. I just love that. So encouraging to me. And it, it reminds me of the story that you opened up your book with the, the group of seminary students that were using a, a room in a, a local high school where the custodian was allowing them to do that. And they gave him a, a Bible as a kind of a, a thank you for letting them do that. And one night after a study session, they came, came out and they saw him reading the Bible. One of the students walks up to the custodian and says, see, you're reading the Bible. What are you reading? He said, I'm reading the last book of the Bible book of Revelation. He said, oh, that's a challenging book. There's been a lot of people who have studied that in depth and a lot of differing opinions. And he said, oh, I think I get it. And the, the seminary student stepped back and said, what are you talking about? And he says, oh yeah, Jesus wins. <laughs> I, I love the fact that we know the end of the story. And that, that to me is just so encouraging as, as we try to battle and make our way through this world. But I have a question for you as we get started here. First of all. Yes, sir. First of all. Yes, sir. I need to get I need to get a copy of those 66 love you letters. You will get one. One will be in the mail to you tomorrow, sir. Guaranteed. Oh, thank you. Thank yeah, you. Uh, because just, 
just the way you read that to me reminds me of, of one of the things I always admired about your dad. And it's this almost brutal honesty. There's no game playing on spirituality. This is real life. This is a real God. I, I'm a real person. We're facing real stuff. And he just would name it. And yeah, I want to read all 66 love letters then to see how he worked through it. I want to check out Habakkuk right away. I, I remember as I, I had a chance to take all of my dad's chicken scratch notes that were his writing. He always wrote every book he ever wrote with was a pen and a paper. And I did all of the transcription from the book Soul Talk on. So as we were doing, this book was birthed out of him one night where he just sat down and said, why did you write the book of Genesis? And just would write a sentence and did that all the way through the book. And he said, man, this could be a fun book. Talk to Harper Collins about it. They said, great. And it took him four and a half years to write. So <laughs> it was, as I said, if you're going to be speaking for God, the father, you better have your ducks in a row, dad. And so he talked to theologians all over the world and read every commentary on every book of the Bible you could think of. So you can imagine oh the, my goodness. the challenging task that was, but it, it really is, I believe his Magnus Opum and I, and a Magnum yeah. Opus. And I think that I, you will enjoy it. It's him having a conversation with God about every book of the Bible. And the last piece of the book is where he strings through the entire message and how it just leads to Jesus all the way through. And, all the way through. Um, it's just, it's amazing. And it, I, I think it's one of his best, but you've had a chance to pastor. I, I read your bio a little bit. You've pastored all over the world. I've traveled a little bit, but most of my barometer for the church is coming from the West, which I know is incredibly limited. But where do you see the church going these days? Oh my goodness. I'm where not trying to get heavy going? on you right off the bat here, but... <laughs> Yeah, he went right to it, though. He did. He did. Of course, now, we, when we say the church, and we, we think worldwide, mm -hmm. it's going to be different in different places. Yes, absolutely. So right off, we know that the, the center of gravity for the church right now worldwide is Africa, mm -hmm. where it's just going so fast. And we, the emergence of African theologians, ironically, the first great theologians, Augustine and company, were Africans. So... I don't know Africa enough to say where the church is going there. I did live in Manila for four years, and then I've been to Korea many times and been to Hong Kong. And of course, now all three of those cities are facing different dynamics, and who knows how the church is going to spread in those places. Yes. So I'm like you. I, I, I'm more in touch with the West. Canada is different than the United States. I'm a dual citizen, so I know both sides of the border, sure. but very different. Where do I see the church going? Uh, well, we're in for a ride. We're in for a very challenging time. And I, the way I put it with uh, young pastors, is it's almost a sense as in, in which we're returning to the beginning. The early churches, the, the letters that Paul writes are all to early churches. They're all new church plants. <laughs> the seven churches of, of Asia Minor in Revelation, they're all young churches. They were they were facing a similar situation in that they had no political support, no political party. There weren't parties, there were just dictators, didn't support the church, didn't name the name of Jesus, and they had no cultural support. Well, there was no precedent for it. So they had to learn to follow Jesus, how to be the church without the support of the government and without support from the culture. And it seems to me we're in a similar place, especially in Canada. We have no support from the government as such. In fact, contrary in some ways. And then the culture has drifted in such a, a de-Christianized, almost neo-pagan direction. So we have no support there. So 
we are at a place of great dependency. If the Spirit of God does not move, none of our technology and tricks are going to work. No. It just isn't going to work. The, the Spirit is the one who makes Jesus real. He's the one who convicts people. He's the one who opens hearts. He's the one who empowers ministry, on and on. You, you, you know the drill. Um, not by power nor by <laughs> might, but by my Spirit, saith the Lord. Nothing we can do. No, except cooperate and cooperate. participate with the Holy Spirit. I think we're moving into a time when we're going to have more courage, more conviction. As I am rereading so much of the New Testament, I tell my wife regularly, I did this morning, I know I've read this a lot of times, and I've even taught on this, but I just read it for the first time yeah. in some of the warning passages. Mm-hmm. You're not going to be liked by everybody. Not everyone is going to embrace your agenda. You're not of the world. You're speaking a different language. You're talking about a different reality. So don't be surprised if you get some pushback. And of course, that's mild language. He says, don't be surprised if actually you're hated on account of me. So we're moving into a time where it's going to de- demand courage and conviction, perspective, and a deep relationship with Jesus so that we can hang in there and keep our balance. I, I love that whole notion of hanging in there because what comes to my mind is the whole notion of finishing well. And scripture talks about it all the time. And I think it's because the, the hardest part of the race is at the end. And I was so fortunate to see my father finish well as he, as he just, toward, towards the end of his life, the only time he would weep is, I'm going to see Jesus. And I said, I, I, loved, I love to think of Revelation 4 and 5 now because that's where he's at in, in a place that's existed for time, whatever that yeah. means. And, and it just brings chills to my neck. As I think, what does my dad look like now as he's staring at the lamb on the throne and worshiping? Yes. Always. It just, to me, is so yes. beautiful. And I it just, is. it just drives me. I, I, I just, the biggest thing for me that, that I've taken away from your book in some respect is, what does it mean to have an eternal perspective? Because that's changed my life. If, if I used to think, if I knew I was going to die tomorrow, how would that change how I live today? Probably wouldn't want to start a fight with my wife. Yeah, I, mean, I, I would rec- recommend against that. Yes. <laughs> probably wouldn't watch the local sports game. Not very interested in that. I would probably want to make sure my kids and hopefully my grandson is, is here and I get a chance to pour into them. Because one of the things that I've seen and I've taken from your writings is your love of the word. There's a story dad used to tell. You may remember the, the Red Skelton show back in the day. Yes. Oh, boy, is that Datus. <laughs> He and his father would traditionally every week watch that, that, uh, that show. And one, one, one day, I guess the show was getting ready to come on. And dad, as a young boy, six, seven, eight years old, went looking for his father. And his dad was sitting in the living room with his Bible open in front of the fireplace and said, Larry, not today, because I'm into something here that I need to continue with. And dad was, what's more important than us watching the Red Skelton show? And he went and looked at grandpa, my grandfather, his father, who was sitting there reading the book. Uh, ironically, he was reading the book of Leviticus. <laughs> and, and just the love of the word that my grandfather passed on to my dad and my dad has passed that on to my brother and myself. And I'm, I'm so grateful that I think I've passed that on to my children. And I can't wait to start passing that on to my grandchild. Oh, bless you. That bless just sounds you. so you're, fun. Yeah. You're in for a ride, by the way. Tell me about it. You, your life on a scale of one to 10, when you get married, it changes at, I don't know, eight, maybe. Sure. And then you have children and it changes at about a 
15 out of one to 10. Sure. <laughs> and then grandkids, oh man, it's off the charts. <laughs> yeah. That's so fun, man. I can't, I cannot wait. It is, it is very fun. Very fun. Back to though your emphasis on what your dad and grandfather in terms of the word, I, I think that is a critical thing for disciples generally, but those in pastoral ministry specifically right now, we don't have enough time in the word. I'm afraid that too many of us go to the word to get a word for Sunday or for whatever we're going to teach, but living in the word, if I want, if people ask me, where do you live? I want to be able to consistently say in the word. Sadly, there's some days when it's probably in the web. And if I'm living in the web, I'm not going to be able to make it in our time, but I've got to be in the word more just to be in the word. And then if I have something to preach, all the more, that all the better. But that's not the goal, right? right? That's not the goal of living in the Word. It's You live in the Word so you know the Word himself, the Word made flesh. E. Stanley Jones, Methodist missionary to India the last century. I've counted as a mentor. I've never met him yet, but I've read just about everything he's written. And he has this saying. He says he goes to the Gospels, like in particular, and he says to them, have you seen him whom my soul loves. And he says, the words take me by the hand and lead me to the word. And I've hung on to that, that when we open the book, yes, we're seeing words, but those words are taking us to the word himself, where we find life and hope and joy. So how then are we going to, in this time of supposed small attention spans and people bombarded by words, how are we going to really build solid disciples who live in the word, who look at the world through the word? I, that's the challenge. That, I think that's a fundamental challenge before us. Maybe that's the next book. How to live in the word? <laughs> How to live in the word. That's it. My dad would say to me many times, I have to spend time in the word like I have to eat, like yes. I have to breathe. And I'm, I'm now well, getting an understanding of that. The word made flesh is the one who says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And how to do that, how to do that is, is the challenge. Yeah, the, the questions that, I, that come to mind as we think about this is I, I think of, I, I, I saw something that you said a while ago about six boxes that you put together on how to hear the voice of the Lord. And Dad used to talk to me about, because I would ask him, how do someone would come to him and say, Larry, I've got a word for you from the spirit. How did that impact you, dad? And he said, sometimes it means something to me. Sometimes it doesn't. I said, how do you know that you're getting a word from the spirit? And he said, there's three things. And you actually have six in a different way, but I think they're all still in the same category. He said, scripture's the first, spending time in the word. The second piece is community, spending time in community. And the last piece is prayer. These are the three kind of legs to the stool and thought, okay, a lot of people spend time in the word regularly and they're disciplined well in that respect. Sometimes people, I don't know many people that have had community that's been really effective in respect to, to touching them. Some have, but most small groups don't end very well. Dad said that the Trinity is the only small group that's actually gotten along well in the history. <laughs> that's, that's good. That's his line. I'm going to, I'm going to use that. You use it, you use it, please. And then the, the one that is most challenging is prayer. And dad wrote a book years ago called The Papa Prayer. And the word mm -hmm, Papa stands for, stands for, for four acronyms. It's, it's present, attend, purge, and approach. 
And what I've noticed is I've had a chance, we're actually doing a series on that in this podcast now, this last quarter of prayer, because it seems to be so weak in so many people's lives. And I've seen just in my own in the last um, year or so that when I do present myself honestly to the Lord and attend to where I'm at and purge what's going on in my soul and approach him as my deepest desire, the spirit opens up doors that I never saw coming in my own prayer life. And it's just been, I don't want to say it's all the time because that's not it. That's for sure. But it's been powerful, Daryl. And it's been something that makes me want more. And how is your prayer life? I would say a better way to answer that would be how do I do the prayer life? Because the quality of a prayer life, boy, that's up and down. Partly circumstantial, partly what's going on in our own lives. And so it's hard to register. But I can say that the last few years in particular, few years, probably since 1980, okay. I received a book by Eugene Peterson, Answering God on mm-hmm. the Psalms. Mm-hmm. And if you know that book, I do. he says that we're to be, that the Psalms are prayers that tutor us in prayer. And he says that the program is very simple. Just do it. <laughs> Start with Psalm 1, go to 2, and keep going. So I've been doing that every day since uh, my birthday, 1989. I do not know where I'd be without the Psalms. So that has become the place where the Spirit of God enables me to approach the Father in the name of Jesus in very honest, full range. I'm fumbling for a word there, deep ways. And I can tell you that I can be really weary. I can be overloaded. But if sitting in my chair in my study and just praying a psalm every day has made all the difference in the world. And then if you'll discover if you read my book on Ephesians, Paul's prayers. Yeah. My goodness. Where did he, I was going to say, where did he learn to pray like that? <laughs> and, and I think Paul learned to pray through the psalms yep. and then also through Jesus, yes. watching Jesus pray and John 17. But Paul's prayers have been, have, have have shaped my prayer life more. So the point you see what's going there is my prayer life is shaped by the word too. Yes. So it's not like there's word and prayer. There's prayer that makes for, I mean, there's, there's the word that teaches us to pray. And as we pray, the word becomes more alive and there's a back and forthness to that. So you can't separate prayer and the word. I'm fumbling there a little no. bit. So... I, that for the last decades then has been what sustains me in prayer. And I find more and more that I, in, in, if there's a, a group meeting or a gathering of some sort and someone asks me to pray, I'm just going to whip out the book. <laughs> and I know the, the Psalms well enough. I know the Psalm that we're going to pray, just yeah. pray it. And so that'd be my response to prayer life. And that's what the disciples asked of Jesus. Teach us how to pray. They didn't ask anything else that we have a record of. They may have said, teach us to preach like you preach, uh, but there's no record like that. No. Teach us to cast out demons. No. Teach us to pray because they could see that the essence of Jesus' life and ministry was the relationship with the Father. Yeah. And that the means, that's a wrong word, but the nature of that relationship was in prayer. He's constantly slipping away. Sharon and I watched one of the episodes of The, The Chosen last yes. night. Excellent. And it is so fun. You have to live with what if. It's not always super accurate, but boy, I, I think they're in touch with the dynamics of that. 
but it, it, there's that scene where Jesus has been in ministry with the disciples and they're all having a good time and he starts to leave and he, they say, where are you going? He goes, I'll be back. I just need to go away alone. That was really powerful. And of course they followed him out there so he couldn't be alone. But at any rate, I love how that show so, fills in some of the gaps. It does. In, in some of the ways that we would have anticipated perhaps that those would have happened, but that aren't necessarily in scripture. Um, That's right. Like the woman at the well. Sure. Uh, when she presses him back, what do you mean? You don't even, you don't have a you don't have a bucket. You're already gonna get water. And I, when, as I watched that, I thought, okay, I pray, Lord, is that how that could have happened? And I had the pieces saying, it might have. Might have. <laughs> sure. It, it sure made it real. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. It's it's interesting because you said sometime I heard where you talk about the work of the spirit. And that's been something that I've been really obsessed with lately, Daryl. How do you know the work of the spirit's going on? How do you know I'm getting a word from the spirit? How do I know the spirit's yeah. guiding me? And you made a comment that the, the spirit works very slowly until he doesn't anymore. And I think I've experienced some of that. Can you unpack that a little bit? He, ordinarily, not always. Ordinarily, as someone said, the spirit is a gentleman. Comes at it us mostly through a whisper, mostly in the quiet. And if we listen, then he speaks more. And if we listen, he gives clearer. And if we listen more, there's more direct leading. If at the beginning we hear and then we back off a bit and don't listen and back off a bit and don't listen, doesn't waste his breath. Just waits. Are you ready to hear or not? Now, thankfully, there are times when he just takes charge. All right, I've had it with your heart and heart, Daryl. I'm going to barge in here. But ordinarily, those whispers. And that's where the discipline for me comes. I've got to, I've got to act on that right away. As I don't want to miss the next thing he's going to communicate. Yeah. So I think that's what was behind that sentence. When you mentioned earlier, as we were chatting, that our only real role is to cooperate and invite as the spirit moves into our lives, Lord, there's nothing that we can do, but as we invite the spirit to move through us, and now the spirit has an opportunity to connect with you or iron sharpens iron, that people who don't have the spirit don't have that opportunity. No. And it just no. breaks my heart and it makes me feel like the house is on fire and there's a baby in there that we got to go get. Huh. And, and so I just, I don't know, I've been feeling the work of the spirit in my own life. I told you a little bit about my story with my wife, which was a blow, but I've looked at it now after three years of what a gift God has given us in respect to taking our eyes off of this world and putting our eyes on the next. And so did yeah. your wife had, did she die of the cancer then? She's alive. She was oh. diagnosed September 8th of 2020. She went in to have the left lower lobe of her lung removed. They found a tumor in there. It was stage one at the time when they opened her up, they said it's now gone to stage four which meant it had metastasized to the pleura of the lung, but it had not gone to the brain. And it was, I just said that, Lord, this is so unfair. This is a woman who smoked, eats, takes care of herself, all the stuff. This is not fair. And God just says, I'm doing this for you. <laughs> I could hear it. And it just, it's been an amazing journey since then, which has changed my perspective in every way and how I live. Because I know that I probably won't have her for much longer. But God's in it. I'm ready for it. Bless yep. you. Bless you, Cap. Yeah. It's good, but it's hard. But that's where 
God said, I'm not moving slowly anymore with you. I'm moving quickly now because it's time. And that kind of brings me back to our topic today on Revelation. I just, I know this has been since Jesus ascended, but I feel the Lord's coming back soon. I think this world is in a place that seems to be setting up for things that I see of him coming back to take us. And where where are your thoughts on some of that, Daryl? Because I noticed you didn't go into any of your own positions in this book, which I thought was brilliant. (laughs) Let me back up just a second and say something more about apocalyptic literature. Could I do that for a moment? Then we set that other question in context. Anywhere you want to go. Okay. Apocalyptic literature, that's what we're dealing with. The first line of the book is the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. And as I say in the book, and as I preach on that, when most people hear the word apocalypse, they go, oh no, something really bad is about to happen. And you can hear regularly the news media describing the, the war in Ukraine or other kind of tragedies. Uh, we warn you, you're going to see some apocalyptic images. Right. That's a wrong, that's a wrong use of the word apocalyptic. You're going you're to see some horrific images. You're going to see some cataclysmic and catastrophic I- images, but they are not necessarily apocalyptic. So apocalypse simply means breaking through from hiddenness. Yes. Apocalypse, lift the cover off of a, a box, the cover page of a book, pull back a curtain. And so in the first century, when people heard an apocalypse, they go, oh, wow, something wonderful is to happen. Do it. Pull back the screen. So apocalyptic literature functions in that way, to reveal what is ordinarily hidden. Now, it does this in two ways. It has two pastoral purposes. And the first is to set the present moment in all of its chaos and ambiguity in light of the unseen realities of the future. Yes. Because if you can see the future for just a moment, it changes the way you see the present and it can change the way you live the present. And you're, you've been talking, hinting at that all the way along here today. Set the present moment in light of the unseen realities of the future. We can't see the future with our, with our unaided senses. And the future is Jesus is coming with a new heaven and a new earth. And I love the image right there in chapter 21 of Revelation and he will wipe away all their tears. I've preached, there will be no more tears. But lately I've been captured by that tender image. He himself will wipe away all those tears. There's a lot of tears to wipe away and he's gonna do it. So the future. But the other function of apocalyptic literature, and actually the more primary one, is to set the present moment in light of the unseen realities of the present. Because Mm -hmm. we don't see all that's going on in the present moment. There is more to reality than what we can see with our eyes and hear with our ears and touch with our hands, smell with our nose, et cetera. And the the role of apocalyptic literature is then to open up that more. And then you've read into the book far enough to know what I'm going to say. The greatest unseen reality of the present moment is a person, Jesus himself. And that's the job of the last book of the Bible. Both of those, but primarily the second because we, in order to operate in this present moment, we need to know the full reality of the present moment. And most of us do not. We don't pay attention to the fact, for instance, there are angelic forces, principalities and powers, all of that we, we don't take into consideration. But primarily, we don't take into consideration that the one who is coming is present, even now, yeah. with us. And if we can see him, it can change the present. 
there are two commands in the book of, in the last book of the Bible. You, you saw me pause because the title is not Revelation, but the Revelation of Jesus Christ, a whole mouthful. You have to say it because it's revealing him. But there are two primary commands in the book. The first is, do not be afraid. I forgot how many times it occurs. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. And the second command is behold or look. Not all translations keep that behold or look anymore. It's an imperative. It's really critical. So you want to have a version of the Bible that keeps the word behold or look. Okay. So Jesus says, do not be afraid, look. And it turns out that we obey the first command, do not be afraid, by obeying the second command, look. Yes. Which is a way of saying that we're so afraid right now in 2023 because we're not looking at him. We're looking at all the economic factors. We're looking at all the political factors that are scaring. I was just in the States last week speaking at a conference with pastors, and pastors are really trembling how they're going to handle the next few months, the political situation. We're looking at, at the rise of militant terrorism and, and all those other kinds of things we're looking at, but we're not seeing Jesus. So as long as we look at those things, we're going to be afraid. Yeah. But once we see Jesus in the midst of it, and begin to understand what he might be doing with all of that, then we can breathe. We can hold our own. We can keep our balance, even though it might be frightening, and it may require all kinds of courage, as I said earlier. So I think that's why Jesus gave the revelation to John on the, on the prison island. If you can see me and see who I am, I have the keys. I am ruler of the kings of the earth right now. I am stronger than the dragon and the two beasts. If we can see that, we'll make it. If we don't, we'll compromise, which of course we see happening in many places. All over the place. How do you keep your eyes focused on Jesus? Oh, but I said that's the number, deep number one question. I think of Peter as he's getting out of the boat to walk across the water and he looked at the water eyes. and I I've been through some deep waters and I know you have too. This life I love to say is just not set up to work. I'm, I'm mid fifties now and I'm not what I was when I was 35 years old. My body hurts more and it's just set up to fail because of the fall. And so in the it's midst a broken of this world, in the broken world, in the midst of this broken world, when it really does oftentimes seem that Satan is winning, how do we keep our eyes firmly fixed on Jesus? Very good question. And you're, I'm going to give an answer we've probably talked, we've talked about before already in this podcast. And I, for, your, for the listeners, believe me, I don't mean this piously. I don't mean this naively. There's only one way to fix your eyes on Jesus, and that's living in the Word. It's the only, it's the only way. I, re I recently put it this way. See if you agree with me, Kep. A person can be in relationship with Jesus without spending time in Scripture. That's because no Jesus has gotten a hold of us, right? He yeah. took a hold of me. He initiated that relationship. He's grabbed, Paul says, he seized me. And now I want to seize what, the reason he seized me. I can be in relationship but not know him. Look at marriages. They're in relationship, but they've gave up getting to know. And the only way in a marriage you can know the other is the other has to reveal herself or himself to the other. So in this relationship with Jesus, I can't know him 
unless I listen to him reveal himself to me. And I were stuck. There's only one place to get that. That's it. The living, breathing right? word. In the living, breathing word. And is that most so, Christians today, Daryl? Is, is that the majority of Christian Christians today that just don't spend time in the word and are, are, don't know Jesus in the way that, that he wants? I, I don't know about majority, <laughs> how to answer that specifically. Yes, I think that's the crisis right now. Uh, for, for pastors who are listening in on us today, I would say that's the crisis in the church. Our people who might love Jesus and have good feelings toward him and really want to follow him yes. don't have enough time uh, in the place where he actually meets us to actually know his character. And that's why we can get snookered by the enemy because we don't know the real thing well enough, the story about how FBI agents are trained to spot counterfeit money. Mm -hmm. They're never shown counterfeit money. Just real I money. It's so just, And that real money so well that the counterfeit comes and goes, well, that's bogus. Yes. You can throw that right away. So the only way we're going to be able to stand against the lies all around us right now is we have to know him who is the truth. Yes. And the only way to do that is in the word. Now, here's the caveat, or not caveat, the application. Different people learn in different ways. Different people read in different ways. So at, at the job of the leaders is, is to find out the different personality types and the different learning types. How do we help them get in the word? For some, it's going to be listening to the word orally. Okay, get that iPod, get that iPhone on, go for a walk and just plug that in for 40 minutes and listen to the Gospel of John, if that's how you learn. Others, it's reading. Others, it would be through film. Now, that's where it's a little dicey because you want to make sure the film's doing a good job. Sure. Others, it's through teaching. Other, you or I communicating with people. So there are going to be different ways, but, all, but the final analysis is it's the word. Remember the Richard Scarry pop-up books? Remember those at all? I do, yeah, vaguely. Yeah, so the, you open the book and then there's a three-dimensional mm -hmm. uh, picture that emerges. I think a scripture yes. that way. You open the book and Jesus pops out. And that's where you meet him. That's where he tells you how, his character. And the more I can do that, the more I spot the counterfeit instantaneously. Yeah. And, I, and again, I keep using this word, I get my balance again. I get perspective and I can keep going. Yeah, so I, I lament the, the, I don't like to use the phrase biblical illiteracy. Uh, that sounds like someone intentionally didn't want to know. Sure. But the lack of real knowledge of the word. Now, that's a lifetime mm -hmm. of, of a discipline. Yep. I'm going to turn 76 in a few weeks. Okay. So I've got a few years on you. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and I, I can tell you right now that scripture has never been as alive for me as it is right now. I love hearing. I said earlier that I said to my wife this morning, I know I read that. I, if she were here, she said, you tell me that every day because it's getting richer and richer and richer and bigger and better and more, more massive. And I want everybody to have that experience that the older you get, the more he meets you in the word. That is so encouraging. Yeah. I'm in, a, I'm in a life group with two other guys that are your age. And what I've come to realize in chatting with these guys weekly for the last year and a half now, doesn't get any easier. And uh, this life gets harder in respect to even relational challenges, obviously physical challenges. But I love what you said is the word is coming alive in a new way, a different way to you now, even after having spent a half a, a century immersed in it 
because it continues to talk. I, I, I got a chance to watch one of your messages on the distinctions between Isaiah 6 and Revelation 4 and 5, and I just loved it. I loved it so much because the difference is Jesus, the Lamb, that, that now right. has opened up the throne room to all of us where he's sitting in the middle. And I just continue to think that's where my dad is now. He's one of those 24 thrones around the big throne who's just worshiping the king, who's a lamb sitting in the middle. It just it brings goosebumps to my body thinking <laughs> that's where my dad is right now. And I can't get over it. It's just so uh, powerful. No, yeah, we lost a son. That's where our son is. And my mom and dad and my two brothers and all the dear friends, all the dear people I've served over the years and done funerals for, they're there and they're fine. Thank you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> More than fine. I I'd like to. I'm oh, sorry. I'd like to think, I, I think we have biblical justification for it, like in Revelation 7 and then in Hebrews 11 and 12. They're praying for us. They, I don't know that they can see that thin veil between the two worlds. We, we're probably going to be heretics if we try to talk about, about that any further. But I think there is a sense in which they are aware we're not there too. They, they may not experience pain that we pay, have the pain of the loss of them. They may not, not have that same pain. But they're aware. Your dad's aware you're not there. And, and he's praying for you and your brother oh. and your family. And man, and, and boy, do they know how to pray in that world because well, they know what it's going to be like. And more importantly, back to Revelation again, they know what it's really like yes. even now. And I would like to think that they're praying, Lord, your dad's praying, oh, Lord, help kept see, help him see the, the, the full present right now. Yeah, give him a glimpse of the future, but help him know what's really going on in the future and the present, that Jesus is really there for him and with yeah. him brings tears to my eyes. I love to think of the fact that my father is no longer living with faith or living with hope. He's just living in <laughs> just love. No more faith and hope because the greatest of these is love because at some point faith and hope end when you're sitting there Me looking too. at Jesus. Now he's, he's Jesus. And that just, I would often say to my brother, I said, if dad were to come back and write a book, that would be a book I would buy <laughs> after what he's had a, had a chance to see for the last two and a half years as he's oh, in the wonderful. presence of Jesus and just worshiping. I love your notion on worship too, in that it's something that's happened before time. I, I, I used to have a chance to lead worship at various churches, and I hate saying leading worship. You're leading the music part of a, of a worship, of a church service. Good. Good worship doesn't you. never Good start or stop. Okay, it's time to start worshiping now, everybody. And okay, we're done worshiping, and now someone's going to I never understood that. I always think I'm just hopefully bringing you to the throne room, and this is where you want to live. That's um, right. And uh, it's just so exciting to to have heaven on the forefront of our minds. I love to to think about that. And that's where the book of Revelation, the, the, the revelation of Jesus Christ is something that it changes the way I live right now as I think about heaven. And I think that my, the biggest job that we're doing with Larger Story and why I created this ministry was I just, when my dad passed, I thought this is not going to be good if, if what he talked about, and what does it mean to represent Jesus now to others relationally? If that were to die with him, I said, that would not be good. I don't want that. I want that to continue to live. And our focus is to really, what does it mean to, to cross generationally disciple people? How do I talk to my daughter who's 26 today and my son who's 23? And how do I talk to them in a way that, that gets them hungry and thirsty for the Lord? How do I let them know that this is life? 
and the things that the world is trying to tell you is life is actually death. And those are the things uh, that I'm thinking about now. Yeah, we're living in a time when a lot of what's being said is death. They don't they don't see it now, but they're going to see it. Yeah, I'm I'm working with a young church here, Sharon and I. I've always served churches that have been at least sixty years old. <laughs> and uh, they, they, wonderful opportunities. But if you serve a church that's been around a while, you'll hear a lot of, we don't do it that way, or we've never done it that way, or that sort of thing. Bl bless their hearts, as they say in the South. Just bless their hearts. <laughs> bless their hearts. So it's great to be part of a church where it's not been around long enough for anybody to say that. <laughs> and so we can experiment. But I can tell you, I'm the oldest person in the building every Sunday. I'm preaching this next Sunday, but the oldest person there. Sure. And just, hundreds of these young people, they are so hungry. I don't remember being that hungry when I was in university. I knew I was. I knew I was hungry. I knew I loved Jesus. I knew I wanted to, to know him and follow him. But my goodness, they're really alive right now. And I asked them, what, where does this hunger come from? And they'll say, because it's not working. Yes. Nothing's working for us right now. So this may be for a while, the first generation that at a young age is not buying into the illusion yes. that we can make the world work. So they're hungering for more. And then they hear the story and the story pointing to Jesus. And they go, where did this come from? How come I didn't know this before? And I could tell you all kinds of stories that I even heard this morning reported from Sunday. So it's a great generation. Your kids are in, the, in that. One of the things I discovered kept that I think is a key is that your age and my age especially, I wonder if our posture needs to be more a posture of listening than telling. Amen. We'll get a chance to tell only if they feel we've listened. And their questions are very different than the ones I had. I went to university 75 to, I mean 65 to, oh no, 65 to 69 I'm in university. Sure. And that was a whole different world. We had questions, but not like now. Yeah. And so I think that younger generation is looking for people like you and me who will just listen. And then they finally say, so what do you think? Yeah. And then- I used you, to call that the art of curiosity. That's good. Yeah. That's good. What does it mean to be curious? And I've and sensed that too, Daryl. What's that? I've sensed that as well, that the younger generation is hungry for something. They're thirsty for something because they're seeing such a distinction in respect to the direction that some of these places are going, that they're like, that's not the direction I want to go. And so that no. goes back to our first question of the day was, where's the church going? Well, I think there's some real hope for what's happening. I think there's some real struggle and it's going to be challenging, but boy, there's some people out there, younger generation, younger kids. My son is one of them as well, who I just had a conversation with him a few weeks ago for about an hour and a half of where he's at. Where's his red dot? We, that's what we call it. Where are you at? And be honest. But when you walk into the mall and you say, here's where I'm at, but I want to go here. So I need to go this way. And then I need to go this way. And he was just unloading on me in some ways that just made my heart sing because the Lord's grabbing hold of his life. And this is a 23 year old boy who's making his way now and finished college and deciding whether or not he wants to get married and, and he's got himself a girl. And when's he going to, when's he going to do that thing? And who knows, but it just made my heart sing. And I think he's indicative of a lot of these kids nowadays that are hungry. And I think you're spot on is we have two ears and one mouth, and I want to know what makes you guys click. And I want to know what your struggles are. Yeah, yeah. Where are you afraid? Yeah. And what are you longing for? What are you hoping for? 
where do you find any hope? Which many in this generation say, I don't. Hopeless. Here, let me give you a possible hope. Hope has a name. And he's sitting and, on the uh, throne. And he, he's going to win. He's going to win. Jesus <laughs> wins. Oh, Daryl. He, he wins. He already has. Right? We know how the story ends. We had Good Friday. He won already. He won already. But, uh, we, know, we know how he's going to pull it all together. And uh, yeah. Daryl, this so. is so encouraging to chat with you. I, I just really have appreciated your time and just taking an hour out of your day to, to chat with me. It means the world. I love, I've, I've read a number of your books. I've, I've been an admirer of your work for years. My father has as well, and that was largely through him. But it was just so encouraging to chat with you today. And I'm hoping that the Spirit can take this and do with it what he chooses. I do. That's well, a joy to meet you. Yeah. That's a real joy. I hope so we can I, do this again sometime. And maybe if we get our, our glitches worked out, we can get this figured out. But I, I have really enjoyed chatting with you. And again, you remind me of my dad, the way you look the way you speak and your love for the word. And, and I think similar to dad, you're not pulling any punches. This is, this is where life is and life's hard, but Jesus wins. And I think that's a he great does. place for us to wrap today. So folks, I, I just appreciate you. you joining us today. On behalf of Daryl, I'm Kep Crab. Join us every Tuesday here on Relational Spirituality, where you can belong, you can be known, and you can become who God wants us to be. Um, I pray that the Lord will use this in your lives today. Daryl, thank you so much for joining me and God bless you, Sharon your children, your 11 grandchildren. And I just really am grateful for this time. Bless you. This is pure joy. Thanks. If you like what you heard today, hit the like button just below. Then come back by subscribing to our podcast channel. For more resources on relational spirituality, go to our website at largerstory.com. Thank you.